I'm a little fired up today, ladies and gentlemen, so you're warned when it comes to my commentary today. First, Judge Gull responds in the Delphi case. Is anyone surprised what happened to Derek Chauvin? Crime creates poverty. Let me give you an example. A story of a man who kidnaps and tortures his girlfriend, but don't worry, he identifies as not a criminal. We have a story of a bad cop that will be going to prison for the next 30 years. And then our dumb criminal of the day proves a point. Let's talk about it. <laughs> Good day, everyone. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. Thanks for joining us. You know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't. Like if you do. Leave me a comment below and hit that little bell for notifications. Why? That's right. We're still, I guess, in quasi YouTube jail. So hit that little bell. Mess with their little algorithms. They don't like us. I, you mentioned a couple of words, and next thing you know, you're in jail. Free speech is dead in America, ladies and gentlemen, at least on YouTube. Anyway, I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I know I did. Got to spend it with the lovely Miss Kristen. It was very good. It was relaxing. I hope you are all thankful for what you have. Now, yes, I mentioned in the beginning that I'm a little fired up today. And let me tell you why I'm fired up. Because I just spent five hours of my day that I will not get back. Okay? And you may say, Scott, where were you that you would spend five hours of your day and you wouldn't get that back? I was in court, ladies and gentlemen. I had two arraignments and one continuance. Two clients in custody, one out of custody, same courtroom. I arrived a little prior to 8.30 a.m. this morning, and I got done at 1.30 p.m. The court systems are broken. They're inefficient. They waste everybody's time. And then the people that have to show up and don't have an attorney that can make their way to the head of the line wind up spending their entire day there. It costs them time from work, more than likely that they have a job that they are missing, that they can't help uh, use that money for uh, living expenses, rent, food, taking care of their kids, whatever. It is broken. At least when we were doing WebEx, you could be doing something more efficient as you waited to have your case called. But now everybody wants to go back to court because they want to exert the power and control over everybody in the courtroom. And I guess it is kind of part of the harassment package if a defendant has a case that they have to continuously go back. Now you say, hey, Scott, five hours, what's the big deal? You're getting paid for it, right? Yeah, I am, but it's not the point. I don't like billing clients for wait time in court because the courts are inefficient, but the client unfortunately gets stuck with that. It's not fair. But you say, Scott, what else could you have done? Let me give you an example. In the same amount of time that I spent in court today, on Sunday morning, I got up, went to the airport, departed promptly at 6.30 a.m. on a commercial flight to Las Vegas to pick up Crime Talk 1 because it broke while at the Formula 1 race and I couldn't get it fixed that day. So I had to go back and pick it up. So I left at 6.30. I arrived in Las Vegas. I Ubered from the airport over to the uh, General Aviation Airport there in Henderson. I paid for the plane. I did a flight plan. I did a thorough inspection pre-flight, and I left. And you know what time I arrived back, ladies and gentlemen? 11.30, Denver time. 
So in the exact same amount of time that it took to go to Las Vegas and return back, took me the same amount of time in court today. It just shows you something is broken. It's inefficient and we need to fix it because I'm telling you, it's just the, the court system is coming to a screeching halt. Maybe it's just my experience, but I think it's that way in a lot of places. Anyway, that's me venting for today. Let's go ahead and open the record now for November 27th, 2023. And first on the docket. So Judge Fran Gull said that a petition to the Indiana Supreme Court calling on her to be removed from the Delphi murder trial should be thrown out due to the defense not using the proper legal avenues to uh, seek their legal goal. Now, Judge Gull wasn't alone in calling for the high court to throw out the petition as the uh, Indiana Attorney General, Todd Rokita, echoed many of Gull's same sentiments in a separate filing that also asked the court to reject the petition. So both Gull and the Attorney General's office here in Indiana called the writ of mandamus filed with the Indiana Supreme Court the legal petition that not only called for Gull's removal, but for the reinstatement of the accused murderer's Richard Allen's original defense team improper, stating that Allen should have pursued an appeal if he thought Gull was abusing her power by removing the original defense team. In the Attorney General's argument that the writ of mandamus was inappropriate for pursuing the reinstatement of legal counsel and that the appellate process is the adequate and preferred way to present these arguments, not a writ of mandamus. Now, Rokita, the Attorney General, pointed out that Allen didn't appeal these actions or file a motion to disqualify despite having the opportunity to do so. They wrote, quote, a writ is inappropriate because Allen has a remedy through the appellate process. He can file his motion for change of judge, and if denied, he can appeal that decision. Now, Judge Gull also echoed this sentiment in her own response, citing the court decision that said, writs are often used as a shortcut to an appeal which cannot be done. One of the main reasons the writ called for Judge Gall's removal was due to her decision to remove Richard Allen's original defense team, Bradley Rossi and Andrew Baldwin, from the case. Now, Gull cited gross negligence in this decision, which came in the wake of evidence leak traced back to Baldwin's office that led to another man's arrest. Now, Allen argued his Sixth Amendment rights were being interfered with by the decision to remove his original defense team. Both Gull and the attorney general argued against this. However, with the attorney general writing that while defendants who cannot afford their own counsel are guaranteed representation via the Sixth Amendment of the United States, the amendment does not provide the defendant the right to choose their appointed counsel. So the attorney general and Gall went on to say that contrary to Allen's claim, there are circumstances that require a court to interfere with a defendant's choice in counsel. One of those instances appears to be here, according to them, gross incompetence. The judge argued that she was well within her power to remove Baldwin and Rossi due to concluding that the pair committed multiple violations of the rules of professional conduct in addition to compromising Allen's defense due to evidence and a leak finding them being negligent and incompetent. Now, the judge drove this point home further by saying that Baldwin and Rossi failed to take responsible steps to safeguard confidential case materials, citing the leaked crime scene's evidence. Not only were the photos laid out in Baldwin's office conference room, providing the opportunity for Baldwin's former co-worker, Mitchell Westerman, to take photos of the evidence, 
but the judge wrote that Baldwin would share with Westerman information about the case to obtain Mr. Westerman's feedback. Gull cited further examples of the pair's incompetence, including Baldwin sending an email about the case to the wrong Brad instead of Brad Rossi, uh, Baldwin and Rossi making statements to the media that included information that would not normally be revealed, and Baldwin and Rossi providing false information to the court about Allen's reported condition in prison. The attorney general also weighed in the transcript on October 19th, where, which is the meeting between the defense team, Gull, and the prosecutors. In the meeting, Rossi and Baldwin claimed they were pressured into withdrawing from the case by Gull. The attorney general stated that in the hearing, Gull listed the reasons why she felt Rossi and Baldwin should be disqualified due to gross negligence as a result of the evidence leak. When given a chance to argue their side, Rokita, the attorney general, said that uh, Rossi and Baldwin withdrew rather than challenge the factual allegations. Judge Gull also argues that she gave the pair ample uh, notice about the consideration of disqualifying them from the case, citing letters that mentioned the possibility or disqualification sent more than a week before the October 19th hearing. And the judge also echoed the attorney general's finding that Rossi and Baldwin had opportunities to be heard on the record arguing against disqualification. Now, while Allen argued bias against him uh, due to Gull's decision to remove Rossi and Baldwin, Gull said, her decision to remove the attorneys doesn't show bias, but rather demonstrates her concern to ensure that he had competent representation. Now, in the conclusion of both filings from the judge and the attorney general, they asked the Indiana Supreme Court to deny the writ filed on behalf of Allen, which would mean the marching forward to the late 2024 trial date where Mr. Allen would be represented by a new set of attorneys. So this gets interesting. Whenever there's an extraordinary writ filed, you go to the Supreme Court and say, hey, this is such irreparable harm. It needs to be addressed now. The courts don't have to take it, but if they do, they're usually going to do something of significance. That's why generally of all the extraordinary writs that go to a state Supreme Court, eh, roughly 2% actually are granted. So the issue here is, should the attorneys have not got off the case, appealed, that could take months slash years. In the meantime, speedy trials ticking away, or do they need to do this? Yes, Mr. Allen does not have a right of choice for his attorneys, but if that's who he wants and there's not a conflict, you would think that the attorneys should be allowed to stay on. I'm telling you, I read that transcript. I've never seen anything like that before in my life. I think Everybody messed up in this particular situation. If the judge thought that the attorneys had screwed up, there's a remedy for that. Hold them in contempt for violating the court's protective order, or in the alternative, she files a grievance with the attorney regulation uh, committee in that particular state and deals with it that way. But once again, then she creates the record. Is she creating problems or protecting the rights of the defendant? Only we will find out here shortly in the next couple of weeks. And as I noted, Thomas Westerman. Mr. Westerman has a charge of one count of conversion. That is a fancy legal term for theft that was filed against Mr. Mitch Westerman um, in Johnson County Superior Court. That is apparently a class A misdemeanor. And um, so he does face the possibility of some jail time and it alleges that he knowingly and intentionally exert unauthorized control over property of another. 
Now, like I said, in the murder case, Richard Allen was arrested back in October of 2022 and charged with the murders of Abby Williams and Liberty German. Now, attorneys Andrew Baldwin and Brad Rossi were assigned as his public defenders, and Allen had pled not guilty to the charges. Well, Baldwin is the founder of Baldwin, Perry, and Riley PC, also known as the criminal defense team with offices in Franklin, Indianapolis, and Noblesville. Now, Brad Rossi is a partner with Hill, Hillis, Hillis, Rossi, and Dean of Logansport. And according to records, Mr. Westerman worked at Baldwin's law firm from 2015 to 2017 as a legal assistant and an operations manager. Now, although Westerman no longer works there, both he and Baldwin reportedly said he still stops by from time to time. And then in a sworn affidavit dated October 18th of this year, Westerman said he visited Baldwin's law firm several months ago. While waiting to meet with Mr. Baldwin, Westerman saw photos from the Delphi murder case on a conference room table and took photos of those photos. Now, Westerman and Baldwin both stated that neither Baldwin nor Rossi gave him permission to take the photographs. And according to the affidavit, Mr. Westerman shared the photos with a man from Fishers uh, who may have served in the Indiana National Guard with Mr. Westerman. The unidentified Fishers man apparently shared the photos with an unidentified Texas man who then shared them with a podcaster. Apparently, the uh, podcaster notified police once they became aware that the photos were prohibited from being released, but of course, they'd already been published. Well, the Texas man uh, who sent the photos are mentioned in the affidavit, but is not charged. Now, the Indiana State Police were reportedly notified on October 5th and began their investigation. Now, according to the uh, court records, Westerman admitted to Baldwin on October 9th that he had taken the photos and shared them with the man from Fishers. And then on October 12th, the Indiana State Police investigators allegedly went to the house of the Fishers man to question him about the leak. The man wouldn't answer any questions without an attorney present and hours later apparently died by suicide. Now at an October 19th hearing that we discussed previously, Judge Gull announced that Baldwin and Rossi were withdrawing from the case because of evidence leaks. Now an initial hearing for Westerman has not been set as of yet. Next on the docket, Derek Chauvin. Is anybody surprised what happened to Derek Chauvin? I'm not. The only thing that surprises me that it took this long to happen. That's right. Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer convicted of murdering George Floyd, was stabbed by another inmate and seriously injured this past Friday at the federal prison in Arizona. Now, the Federal Correctional Institution, also known as FCI Tucson, is a medium security prison where there apparently have been some security lapses due to some, I don't know, staffing shortages. Now, the Bureau of Prisons confirmed that an incarcerated person was assaulted at the FCI Tucson at about 12.30 p.m. local time Friday. In the statement, the agency said that the responding employees contained the incident and performed life-saving measures before the inmate, who it did not name, was taken to the hospital for further treatment and evaluation. Fortunately, no employees were injured and the FBI was notified. That's right, federal prisons, guess who does all the investigations for crimes committed there? The FBI. So the FBI was notified and the Bureau of Prisons um, is uh, cooperating in that investigation. Uh, now, visiting the facility, um, which has about 380 inmates, has apparently been suspended because 
of the lockdown. Now, attorneys for Derek Chauvin and the family are all upset because they can't get any information about what took place and Mr. Chauvin's uh, condition there at the hospital. What people are noting was that Chauvin was seriously injured in the stabbing, but he is expected to survive. So, um, you know, one thing I'm telling you, this works great. So if anyone has anyone in custody, I don't care if it's county jail, state prison, federal prison, the best thing you can possibly do to never get any flack whatsoever is have your mom call the prison and try to get information. Let the mom know that you are being mistreated so that she can then talk to the warden and the staff. I'm telling you, it's the best thing ever. Uh, you're not going to get any flack or repercussions whatsoever. Anyway, Derek Chauvin, not surprised it happened, only surprised that it took so long. Remember, he was in protective custody. They sent him to the federal prison because he was going to get a little cushier gig, so to speak. Well, apparently it didn't turn out that way. But, you know, at least he's going to survive. I wouldn't want to be stabbed. That would hurt. It would hurt a lot. Um, and when you think of whatever he was stabbed with, usually some homemade device, I don't know, a... Um, piece of metal that was taken from the metal shop, the kitchen, uh, possibly a toothbrush, anything that could be sharpened. Ouch, that's gonna hurt. Next, what the heck is going on? This is like something out of an old mob movie. Look at this security footage. It captures the moment that a mob of gunmen attacked an armed guard before they robbed a truck full of cigarettes in broad daylight in Oakland, California. Now, the robbery happened outside a 7-Eleven in Oakland's Grand Lake neighborhood on Saturday afternoon. Eight masked robbers swarmed the security guard with their guns drawn before they take his gun and his taser. The gunman then moved onto the truck going inside and taking large containers of cigarettes. Now, several people were parked in the uh, parking area and the store, and they witnessed the robbery, with many stopping to take pictures and calling 911 as the brazen crime unfolded in broad daylight. The entire robbery lasted about 90 seconds, and the gunman reportedly got away with tens of thousands of dollars worth of cigarettes. And as of right now, there's been no arrest. Now, just to give you a little perspective here, Apparently, um, in the city of Oakland this year, there have been 3,279 robberies, just a small 35% increase from the previous year, which I'm sure, which I'm sure was a record year in and of itself. So this goes back to my comment that crime creates poverty, ladies and gentlemen. When people come and take the 7-Eleven's products and goods. A lot of people think, oh, they have insurance, they'll get it paid for. But that goes up in increased insurance. The insurance company says eventually, hey, we're not going to cover you. You're in such a bad, crappy neighborhood. Eventually, that store owner is going to leave. And then that store owner is gone, and people are going to complain that they don't have anywhere to go down and get their little um, pizza or their gas or their soda, their Red Bull, or anything along those lines because it's gone. And then they're going to bitch and complain that no businesses want to come to a crime-ridden area. Who's going to stop this? The police can't be everywhere, obviously. So what is it going to take? It's going to take the community to say, hey, uh, cops, let me tell you where the bad guy is. And there's where you're going to find all the cigarettes. And the people in those neighborhoods have to police it themselves to let them know that we're not going to allow the criminals to come in here steal things from everybody because I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, crime creates poverty.
when there's no jobs in that area because no businesses will go down there, no restaurants will open up because no one will come down to the crappy part of the town, what do you think happens? Property values drop. All of a sudden, those houses aren't worth anything. The good people move out, at least the ones that can afford to move out. Other people are stuck. Think about it, ladies and gentlemen. It's time the people stand up and do something to stop this nonsense. All right, speaking of some nonsense, um, I'm not a criminal. That's right. He identifies as not being a criminal. That's a new one. I'm gonna use that in court. So a uh, 42-year-old man in Nevada has been arrested for allegedly kidnapping and uh, holding a woman against her will for days. Well, he allegedly tortured, beat, and assaulted her in the sexual nature inside his home. Please meet Edward Y. Kim. Now, he may be a defendant, but he doesn't identify as one, ladies and gentlemen. Anyway, he was taken into custody earlier this month and charged with uh, several felonies, including first-degree kidnapping involving sex, first-degree arson, and sexual assault with a deadly weapon. Now, the investigation into Mr. Kim began when firefighters with the Clark County Fire Department contacted the Las Vegas Metro Police Department back on November 16th after they found a woman covered in wounds. Well, the emergency medical personnel immediately took the woman to the uh, local medical center and the trauma unit there treated her. While being treated, the victim told the physicians that she had been assaulted for two days by Mr. Kim, who she said restrained her with zip ties, hit her with bolt cutters, and would set her hair on fire with a lighter. And this is all according to the affidavit for arrest. Now, the doctors obviously uh, reportedly determined that the victim had suffered fractures to both of her kneecaps and both of her forearms and had fractures to her right leg and finger and her left hand. Doctors and nurses also noted that the victim's hair appeared to be burned in several spots and that she had at least seven puncture injuries on her legs and severe bruising to her upper torso. Well, needless to say, based upon that information provided by the victim, the police got involved and they returned to the area where um, she was initially found. Then they went to Mr. Kim's apartment complex and attempted to contact him. By the time officers were at his home, Mr. Kim had already left, but the police observed what they appeared to be blood um, on his porch. Well, news say they found Mr. Kim in a nearby uh, parking lot where he was attempting to hide behind parked cars. Apparently, he was identifying as a parked car so no one could see him. When asked about uh, what took place with the victim and her injuries, Mr. Kim allegedly conceded that she had been at his home but has no idea what happened to her and how she could have possibly ever been injured. Well, Mr. Kim eventually conceded that he and the victim had been messing around, uh, then claimed he was, well, not really a criminal. He didn't identify as one, and then decided it'd be best to um, refuse to answer any further questions without an attorney. So Mr. Uh, Kim is being held at the uh, Clark County Detention Center without a bond. You know, they were just fooling around. Okay, Mr. Kim, let me give you some advice. Okay, had a case years and years ago. Um, client tried to say the whole gun in the mouth thing to his wife was just a little bit of foreplay. All right, didn't work. Jury didn't buy it. Okay, I don't think a jury's going to buy. They were just fooling around. Just, just messing with you. Yeah, I don't think so. All right, bad cop going to prison for 30 years. A former sheriff's deputy in Texas is going to spend several decades 
three to be exact, behind bars for killing of his special needs girlfriend. Apparently uh, shooting the uh, special needs woman in the temple with his service weapon and then trying to make it look like a suicide. So a jury in Denton County found Jay Rotter, a one-time deputy with the Tarrant County Sheriff's Office, guilty of one count of murder in regards to the 2020 slaying of Leslie Hartman. Now, the same jury that convicted Rotter in the uh, Hartman fatal shooting also sentenced him to 30 years in the state correctional facility. See, in Texas, and I know this because I have a friend that practices law down there, you can have the jury do the sentencing as well. We used to do that in the military. Sometimes it works for you. Well, and sometimes it doesn't. Didn't quite work for Mr. Rotter. Well, the uh, prosecutor did note at the sentencing that the most inculpatory, that's right, the bad evidence, came from uh, data found on Mr. Rotter's cell phone. Shocking. But in particular, there were several messages transcribed on the Discord app at about the same time Hartman was killed. Quote, I told her in bold letters, listen, one shot only. They call it in after and they can. Now, he reportedly wrote in the message that was never sent, but later recovered from the message drafts. He also wrote, I just sent a nine milli in this effing hippie. Well, of course, in true defense attorney fashion, Rodder's defense attorneys argued that the messages he wrote on the night of Hartman's death were about a milk bottle that he had shot in the backyard. The attorneys also emphasized that there was no history of domestic violence between Hartman and Rotter, and therefore it could not possibly be true. Well, the uh, jury, after hearing the evidence, uh, deliberated about three hours and uh, convicted Rotter, and like I said, also gave him 30 years. And next, our dumb criminal of the day. Ladies and gentlemen, how many times have I said it? There are certain people that go places because that's where the children are. All right? I've told you this. I've warned you. If something bad happens, don't say I didn't warn you. Okay? Exhibit A. A Disneyland guest was arrested after he was uh, filmed tearing off his clothes and crawling around the It's a Small World ride in front of... Um, people there at Disneyland. And who's usually at Disneyland? Small children. Well, the now still yet unidentified uh, man was filmed in his boxers climbing over the uh, animatronics figures and uh, sitting uh, in a representation of the Taj Mahal as the flying carpets circled overhead. There's another video that showed the man wading through the water bare naked before he made his way outside of the attraction. And yet another video uh, shows the man being carried away by six security guards. And you can hear other park goers describing him as an idiot for what he is doing in front of the kids. What more do you have to say, ladies and gentlemen? An unidentified 26-year-old naked man at Disneyland. Uh, who do you think he wanted his audience to be? Now, I don't know. We may find out the guy was high on drugs doing something. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he was on some mushrooms or whatever. Or he could be a total profile. We don't know. But also general rule of thumb, this is just me. I'm not sure why adults go to Disneyland if they don't have their own kids. I know there's going to be, I have a friend that he and his wife go every year to Disneyland, even though their kids are grown. I don't get it. 
last place I want to be is around everybody else's small children at that age. At Disneyland, standing in lines, in the heat. Let me know what you think. That's all we have for you today. I don't know. I'm a little fired up. I just don't know, ladies and gentlemen. I'm a little fired up today. Have a wonderful day. I'll be in a much better mood tomorrow. We'll see you next time on Crime Talk. Crime Talk.